Solve the World, Episode 2, The Leviathan. Meet Rabbi Itamar Levi, 47 with two daughters, ages 9 and 6. Their names are not pertinent, and we need not bother ourselves with learning them. Rabbi Levi, however, shall play for us the role of soothsayer. He is the first of many voices that will influence Jennifer Dash on her quest, and this, her first encounter with him, though she won't yet learn his name, will not be her last. Thus we return to Jennifer Dash at a fast food joint. She buys a salad with chicken and ranch dressing. The cashier asks if she'd like to purchase a Magical Kingdom Unicorn collectible fun bottle which comes with a complimentary twisty straw. Jen hesitates. She doesn't need anything like that. She doubts it will help her solve the world. Perhaps noticing her hedging, the cashier adds that the bottle can be brought to any location of the joint for a free soda refill until November 1st, when the Magical Kingdom opens their newest attraction. This tips the deal in Jen's favor. She'll need soda refills in the coming days and weeks, that's for sure. The total for the meal in the Magical Kingdom bottle comes to $11.82 after taxes. Jen pulls out all $17 from her back pocket, slaps it on the counter, and tells the cashier to keep the change. Jen sits. Facing her a row away is Itamar Levi with his two girls. While Jen chows down, the six-year-old stares at her. Why does the little girl stare at her so? The girl promptly responds to Jen's questioning thought. Daddy, are unicorns real? Jen sucks at her unicorny twisty straw with short, rapid sucks suddenly invested in Rabbi Levi's answer. How does one answer that question? Like every other piece of isolated knowledge, Jen supposes she must treat unicorns just like the cosmonauts and vampires on page 70 of the Macy's catalog. They were the stuff of myth until proven otherwise, part of the Flagatorindur mythos. Nevertheless, she yearned to hear insider information. Maybe this man, whom we know as Itamar Levi, but Jen does not, knows some deep secrets. Jen was not to be disappointed. Are unicorns real? Are unicorns real? Well, of course they are. How else would we know about them? The real question is, when did they disappear? You see, children, there's something like dinosaurs to us. They're extinct now. At least, there doesn't appear to be any walking on the face of the earth these days. But we have good reason to believe that they were here, and they were real. There's a couple of differing ideas as to what really happened to them. There's these fellas, they go by the name of the Irish Rovers, and they sang about unicorns. They think that when the flood came and God sent all the animals to come to Noah and his ark to be saved from the rains, the unicorns were such a playful lot that they were simply too busy horsing around with one another to take any notice of the rain. <laughs> See what your father did there? Horsing around? Unicorns? Anyway, those playful animals never made it on the ark, so Noah had to close up shop and set sail without them. At this point, the nine-year-old, glaring skeptically at her father, says, I don't believe that. Don't believe that, Lily. Itamar responds, No, no, of course. It's a silly idea. I don't believe it either. You know why? The girls stare blankly at their father. Because the Torah says plainly that all the species of the world got onto Noah's boat. Surely God wouldn't lie to us. No, there's a more complex answer. But I don't think you want to hear it, and we don't have time to go into it tonight. Whilst the six-year-old pouts and pleads for her father to tell the true story of the unicorns, Jen jumps up to refill her orange soda. As she returns to her seat, it's clear that Itamar, with pseudo-reluctance, is ready to delve into the story.
It took God six days to create man and all the animals, right? Right. You remember that God gave man authority over the entire animal kingdom. Adam was meant to be their protector and their watchman. But as you know, man sinned, chasing after the false dreams of that pernicious serpent. None of this came as a surprise to God. Of course not. He knows everything. That's why he created three special creatures. These giants would be the protectors of their own kind. He only made one of each so that they would never have babies and overrun the earth. He made them in such a way that they would never die by natural causes. They would never grow old. They would never catch diseases. Mm-mm. God intended these three to dwell on the earth generation after generation, watching and protecting their kind morning and night. God made three because there are three forms of matter where animals dwell in this world. Air, water, and earth. For the air, God fashioned ziz. They say Ziz has such long wings that when she flies, she blocks out the sun. No matter where you stand on Earth, there's an old tale of a couple of boys alone by cliffs next to the sea who were looking for a shallow place to wet their feet. They were something like farm boys, so they didn't really know how to swim. That's why they were scowling the seaside for a safe, shallow place to dunk their feet. Far on the horizon, they saw a bird standing in the water, cleaning itself. The boys said to one another, Look, if that bird can wet its feet over there, then surely we can wet our bodies in peace. But as they traveled to the waterhole, the bird in that distant spot took toward the heavens, and suddenly it was dark on the earth, darker than night. A moment later, the sun returned to its place, and the boys thought little of the strangeness, except that the bird was gone. When they finally arrived to the supposed shallow place where the bird once rested, they fell in and drowned that very day for the sea was fathoms and fathoms deep in that spot. Ziz chose it because it was the deepest water hole in that part of the world. Jen wonders how this man could know this story. If only the two boys saw the Ziz, and they both died that day, who was there to witness the event? That is the Ziz. Then there is Behemoth, the great monster of land sent to watch and protect all of God's land-based creations. They say Behemoth was like an elephant, hippo, lion, and cheetah mixed together in one giant atrocity. Because he roamed on land, just like man, Behemoth was feared more than any other beast on earth. He gave little children nightmares and old men the willies. Lastly, for those that dwell in the great oceans and abysses, God made Leviathan. She is some sort of sea monster, known to be able to devour a ship in a single gulp. Leviathan is so mighty that even God himself boasts of her magnificence. It's true. In the book of Job in our Tanakh, you'll find a mighty terrifying description of the monster of the dark waters. Note. Since that a description of Leviathan is readily available for reading in the book of Job, chapter 41, verses 1-34, through 34, I thought it best to go ahead and quote that passage, as it directly relates to Jennifer, despite the fact that Rabbi Levi did not read this passage on the day of the story's telling. And so, I shall quote here from the English Standard Translation. Can you draw Leviathan with a fishhook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traitors bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of man is false. 
He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go forth flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him, and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, nor the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee for him. Sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are also counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underpants are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a thrashing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Rabbi Levi continued, They were three, Ziz, Behemoth, Leviathan. And so they were, growing in wisdom and strength, generation after generation, causing man to fear them while watching over their kind. But even though these made the race of man tremble, to the animals under their protection they served as kind and benevolent mentors. The lion asked Behemoth how to roar, the Ziz taught penguins how to fly, and great Leviathan herself showed the shark how to hunt. The three kept order in the world, no species went extinct on their watch. There was, however, a growing enemy for the three. Remember, Leviathan, Ziz, and Behemoth were blessed with a strong vitality, but they were not invincible. They could be killed. Man, who had learned from Cain how to kill, hated the three. He envied them. He wanted their fame. He wanted their strength. And I tell you truly, children, every hunter in the world, in the darkest corridor of his heart, no matter how nice a person secretly yearns to be the one who slays the ultimate beast. For many, many centuries, the Great Three didn't worry too much about mankind. He built pyramids and fought wars against himself, but he posed no real threat. Until, that is, some 1,500 years ago, there was one crooked, evil man. This man wanted to be a god. He wanted all the glory that belongs to God to go to him. His mischievous plan was to hunt the three. First, he tried to kill Ziz. He paid great loads of money and resources to build a machine-powered bow and arrow that could shoot hundreds of feet into the air. But whenever he found Ziz sitting on some mountaintop resting, as soon as he aimed it, the creature would explode into the sky and again the sky would grow dark, leaving the evil hunter with no means to aim his device. Again and again, he fired his arrow blindly, and undoubtedly, every time the weapon missed its mark, more often than not ending up breaking through some poor peasant's hay roof. 
And so the evil man turned his attention to Behemoth. His first thought was that he could ram it with a tremendous lance. He thought if he rode a war elephant and aimed straight at the belly of the beast with his lance, surely the old giant would fall. For years and years, the evil man searched. One day, when he finally stumbled upon the monstrosity, his war elephant fainted from the fright at the mere sight of Behemoth. The evil man, being launched off his homemade elephant saddle, thought long and hard about his predicament. Another fall from on top the elephant might end in him being crushed. The risk was too much. He needed another way to kill the beast. Slowly, his mind turned to the great machines of the age. Mankind had not evolved over the generations since creation, but his tools had. That's what separated him from his ancestors, the toys he could leverage to murder. But what sort of machine could he build to take down Behemoth? And that's when it dawned on him. He didn't have to build a new machine. He had already long ago fashioned the perfect weapon. The arrow shooter he had devised for the Ziz would be better suited for Behemoth than it ever was for the terrible bird. And he did find Behemoth years later one day teaching hippos how to run on land. This prideful, selfish man aimed his weapon. Down went Behemoth. Blood everywhere. Rivers of it gushed out of the Titan. The protector of all scurrying beasts, great and small, exhaled her last breath. Even in death, Behemoth was nearly unconquerable, for the evil man had to devise a way to drag Behemoth's body twenty miles to the nearest town to show off his great accomplishment. The trek nearly killed the man, but when he reached the town, the people hailed the evil man as a conqueror king. They lavished upon him prizes of every color, and great men from far-off lands came to pay homage to the evil man's cunning and courage. Even history itself pays its respects to the man, for we have come to know him as St. George the Dragon Slayer. The irony, children, is that George never received the peace and happiness that he'd hoped he'd feel after destroying Behemoth. The kids of the day spoke in whispers around George. The bars were filled with babbling drunkards. Women spread rumors. Everyone somehow knew that George was a coward. If he wasn't a coward, then why didn't he use his special hunting skills to take down Ziz and Leviathan? At least, this is what George thought people were saying about him. George, as evil as ever took all his riches and built for himself the biggest, baddest boat that was ever conceived. Some even say it rivaled the likes of Noah's Ark itself. And remember, he was already an old man when George set sail to take down Leviathan. He and his crew were never seen again. Rumor has it that Leviathan hid himself from George. Not out of fear, mind you, but because Leviathan knew that leaving George to endlessly search would do far more damage to him than any swing of Leviathan's tail. Leviathan knew the secret that endless quests don't just lead to physical destruction, but they also grind down your soul into powder. At this moment, the six-year-old redirects Itamar's attention back to the unicorns. Gen 2 is thankful to be back on the topic. I was getting there, I was getting there. After Behemoth died, things were bound to change. You see, Leviathan, Ziz, and Behemoth protected normal, everyday animals like lions, tigers, bears, penguins, and mice. Yes, but they also watched over a sacred order. They were also caretakers of God's magical creatures. Pegasi, fairies, mermaids, the ice monsters of the north, yeti of the eastern hills. All these things were real once upon a time, and the three watched over them all. But now, thanks to St. George, the magical realm in particular was in danger from man. So God intervened. He opened a door. He can do that, you know. Where this door goes, no man knows. 
He called all his magical creatures to leave this earth and live with him on the other side of the door. He spoke to Leviathan and Ziz to tell all the magical creatures. For the land creatures, since Behemoth no longer roamed, he sent an angel. One by one, all the magical creatures made their way to the sacred door to live with God and escape this earth. In those days, unicorns loved to play most of all with the race of Pegasus. But the Pegasi were called by Ziz to walk through the door, ordered to leave the unicorns behind. They said goodbye to their unicorn friends and said they'd meet again in the kingdom at the edge of time. My daughters, unicorns, unlike their play pals, were not magical. They pretty much were just horses with a horn on top of their heads. Nothing particularly special. Rhinos and Norwals have horns on their heads. We don't call them magical. Unicorns, though, were convinced that they just had to be magical. They had to be. Everyone knew they were the best. They got together and figured out that since Behemoth died, someone must have forgot to give them the message to come to the door. So they found a way to follow their Pegasus friends through the mystical door, never again to be seen by human eyes. After they pranced through, the door sealed up. It sensed that someone entered that wasn't supposed to. That was the sound of the door, shrinking into invisibility. The path to it also vanished so that no beast, nor any man, nor anything on Earth could discover the door out of time. The age of magic was over. The age to come was to be one of science and reason. Our age. But the pesky unicorns really disrupted this plan. You see, when the unicorns went through the door, it slammed shut, instinctively not wanting to let other non-magical creatures through its portal. That left some magical creatures on the wrong side of the door. You've heard stories of ghosts and strange happenings. These are merely the lost magical creatures of this earth, searching hopelessly for the path that will lead to the hidden door. They are all stuck in an endless quest now, and you remember what an endless quest does to you, right? Jenna answers the question in her head, barely able to keep herself from blurting out, It grinds your soul into powder! It grinds your soul into powder. You've heard of the Loch Ness Monster, right? Mm-hmm. Leviathan lives. <laughs> the children scream, and Jen's heart pulses with life and purpose. With one story, this man pulled all supernatural creatures and forces under one idea, one mythos, under one reconcilable history. It dawns on Jen in a flash. If she can spot a miracle, or any supernatural being in this life, she could, conceivably, collapse all of life's patterns into one story. This is marvelous, Jen thinks. Jennifer Dash rushes out the door, into the world, focused on a new mission. Forget the male, or Humphaleandra. Forget Flagatorindor. Childish things! Jen has a new mission. She has to get to the sea. She has to find Leviathan. She has to solve the world. All the music and sound effects used in this episode and every other episode of Solve the World are appropriately attributed on our show notes page at DanteStack.com. Hi, I'm Elliot from Melbourne, Australia. I've listened to all 100 episodes of Jen's story. If the world needs protectors, like Leviathan, then there must be those who are on the opposite end of the spectrum villains. Now fully satiated, Jen returns to the streets of Louisiana, only to encounter her first villain that may destroy Jen before her adventure is even a day old. That's next time on Solve the World.